This is Mystical Text with Adel Kazilski. Shavua Tov and a good week it should be indeed. We have just put behind us the nine days, the three weeks of mourning that culminated in the nine days and yesterday. We all went through the rigorous fast of Tisha B'Av, a 24-hour fast. Thank God, as you can hear on the radio, we're back to listening to music, um, ordinary music, not a cappella music, and the restrictions of mourning have left us. And it is in that hope that that moving forward now, now we've got close on about seven weeks to Rosh Hashanah, the countdown um, is happening, that uh, we go into a different mode now, one, where we are able to serve God with joy, and we're coming up to Friday, which is Tuba Av, um, which is a very, very appropriate day. It says that's when matches in the, in, in the biblical times were made between husbands and wife, and we're obviously coming towards the month of Elul, where we are going to find closeness to God. And so, as in the cycle of life, we are changing mode now, um, becoming more joyous again, and hopefully through the process of mourning, which shouldn't have been something completely negative, but something introspective, we have found a deeper connection to God, and uh, we, we, we emerge from this period closer, rejuvenated, and um, wanting to hurry up and bring the geula, the redemption, that much quicker by us taking on um, good deeds. Um, of kindness, um, fulfilling another mitzvah, learning Torah. And of course, over here, we always learn Torah between one and two on a Monday. And we're learning at the source. We're learning the five books of Moses. We're in the book of Genesis. And we're going to learn a very, very interesting story now. Um, it's a story that falls in the travels of Abraham. We are learning Parshat Lech Lecha, all the different travels of Abraham. And we are going to read about an interesting um, side holiday, and I wouldn't call it a holiday actually, a side journey that Abraham takes just as he arrives in the land. He was just told previously to get up and leave his father's home and his birthplace and his land and go to a land that God is going to show him. We worked out that that was the land of Canaan. We spoke about the various places that he visited, but shortly after he's in the land of Canaan, a very, very severe famine hits the area. And Avram is forced to leave the Holy Land and go down to, believe it or not, Egypt. Now, there's a, a lot to discuss over here, um, and <clears throat> what I would like to do before we get into the discussions is just to peruse the verses we are going to read, so you've got kind of like the story that we are going to dissect, and then go into a lot of Midrash, um, particularly from the Yalkut Me'am Loes, because it actually puts in a lot of flesh into the entire story. And then for us to understand what, what does that have to do with us today, because as we said, there's an adage that will now become very prominent through the entire book of Genesis, and that is Mase Avot Siman Labanim. Everything that our forefathers did is a sign for future generations that it will happen to them. So let's just go through the verses for now. Um, and after the break, we will start filling in the flesh. Vayi Ra'av Ba'aretz, there was a famine in the land. Vayered Avram Mitzrayma, Avram goes down to Egypt. Lagursham, 
to live there temporarily, because the famine was severe in the land. And it was, <coughs> excuse me, and it was, as he was about to come into Egypt, he says to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful, beautiful looking woman. And I know when the Egyptians are going to see you. And I'm going to say that you are my wife. They will kill me. And they will take you. Please rather say that you are my sister. So that will be good for you. For, for your sake. And my life will be spared. Because of you. Vayihi, and so it was. Kavo Avram Mitzrayma, when Avram comes to Egypt, Vayiru Hamitzrimitaisha, and the Egyptians see, uh, his wife, Kiyafe, who meod, that she was indeed very beautiful. Vayiru Ota Sare Paro, so the, the, um, officers, the officials of Paro see her, Vihaleluho Ota El Paro, they, um, praise her to Paro. They take Sarai away to the house of Paroi. Avram um, Paro was good to Avraham because of her. He comes, Paro, and he gives Avraham sheep and cattle, donkeys, male and female slaves, female donkeys and camels. So he gives them a lot because obviously he wants to have Sarai as his wife. But God strikes Paroi. Negayim um, terrible, severe plagues. Ve'et beito, not only Paro, but his entire household. Al Sarai eshet Avraham, because he took Sarai, the wife of Avraham. Va'yikra Paro la Avraham. Paro cries and calls to Avraham. Va'yomer, and he says to him, Mazois asitali, what have you done to me? Lama lo li ki ishtachahi. Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Lama amarta achotihi. Why did you tell me she is your sister? Ve'ekach otali. And I took her to me, le'isha, as a wife. Ve'atahine ishtacha kach velech. So now here, take your wife, go. Ve'yitzavalav paro anashim. Paro commands men um, to escort him. Ve'yishlechu oto. And he sends Avram sends him, ve'et ishto, and his wife, ve'et kol asher lo, and everything that he has. This is Mystical Text with Adel Kazilski. Well, we are known as the people of the book. We are literary, literary connoisseurs, consumers of words and prose, sharer of ideas. In short, we are readers. Chayefim is starting a book club. Would you like to be one of High FM Book Club readers? You'll receive a book every month to review on the radio for our listening community. It's social, it's fun, and it's mentally enlightening. We are looking for people with a wide range of reading topics and genres. Get in touch. Email us at books at 
www.sbsradio.com. Well, just before the, gra- the, the break, there was just a little bit of a technical hitch, and it seems that uh, the adverts were quite excited to come on air. We just finished up the story of Avraham going down to Egypt and having this very interesting um, debacle with Pharaoh. And now we're going to take a little bit of a step back and just look at different ideas that can be found in this very interesting um, story as to why does the Torah even tell us this? What is there to learn? And what more about the story can we find out? But I'd like to take a little bit of a step even before that and actually tell you um, that we have always, and I certainly have, have always known that the kings in, in Egypt were called pharaohs. But that wasn't really true. And I'd like to bring something that the Yalkut Me'am Lo'ez brings as, as a story as how the first pharaoh came about. So the, the, the Yalkut Me'am Lo'ez says that in, in Babel, in Babylon, there was once a man called Rekion. And he was a very intelligent, a very, very well versed in all the sciences. He was extremely handsome. The downside to him was that he was very, very poor. And he decided to seek his fortune, and he thought, well, maybe it's a good idea that he go request an audience with the king of Egypt at the time, whose name was Osporos, okay? Because he thought maybe if he can gain favor with him, then the king might help him find a, a means of livelihood. So this Rekion leaves Babel, leaves Babylon, and he goes to the capital um, in Egypt, and he says, can you please tell me when does the king sit in judgment? When can one have an audience? To which the people on the street replied that, look, the king doesn't come out. He keeps to himself in the palace. No one can go in and see him. He leaves his palace only once a year, and he holds court in a special chamber. And on that day, he judges whoever comes before him. After that, you can't have, you, it's impossible to have an audience with him. You have to wait another year. So he got really, really sad, really upset about about it all, like thinking, look, look, I traveled all the way from Babylon to Egypt for nothing. And that night he fell asleep really, really hungry, very disturbed and irritated. And he did not know what to do. In the morning when he woke up, he decided to go to the marketplace and he saw a lot of people selling vegetables. So he thought, you know what? Maybe I should sell some vegetables. I could earn a living that way. And so for several days, he managed to find some wild spinach growing, and he went to the marketplace, and he sold spinach. Problem was that he didn't know the language of the peasants, okay? So he was hawking his wares in a language they didn't understand. They didn't understand him. He didn't understand them. And eventually the peasants started making fun of him, And he gave up trying that as well, and he thought, look, if I don't know the language, I'm not going to be successful in anything. But he still didn't want to go home. So he said to himself, I've come such a far away. I've gone through so much to go from Babylon, from Babel to Egypt. I'm not going to go home without seeing the king. That's why I came. So he started thinking of ways in which he could make a living. And by definition, by making a living, you would have panosa, you would have a livelihood. The livelihood, you'd be able to live until you'd be able to get an audience with the king once a year. So he came up with an ingenious idea. He figured, you know what, he's going to impress people with his superior intellect because he was super-duper clever. 
Okay, remember we said that he was very intelligent. He was very well versed in the sciences. And so he went around and he started impressing people with things that he knew. And long, not long after that, he managed to gather 30 men who were, who were taken by his intellectual prowess. And most of these men were veteran soldiers who knew how to use weapons. And so they decided, as I guess, you know, in the olden days, there were all these vigilante groups. They decided to operate in, in an area called the City of the Dead. Why? Because that's where the Egypt, Egyptians buried their deceased. Now, you can just imagine um, somebody would die. People would be bereft. They would be um, completely broken by the person dying, and they would come and bring their their their, their relative, whoever it is, for burial. What this Rekion did is he said, you tell these people they're not allowed to bury their dead here in this place anymore without paying a fee of 200 gold coins. And so they acted in a vigilante manner, and they functioned like this for eight years, collecting ransom. And as you can just well imagine, they managed to amass a tremendous amount of money. And with this money then, this Rekion, who was very clever, very ingenious, he bought houses, he bought slaves, he hired many more to join him. Um, and at the same time, while he was doing all of this, the people, the, the, the townspeople, the peasants, were getting really mad about them having to have to now pay for the privilege of burying their dead. They were really, really mad. And... They started uh, protesting. And when they went to Rekion and said, this is nonsense, we never used to do this before, Rekion said, no, I'm collecting this tax by order of the king. So they waited the year out, and at the end of the year, the king emerged, this Ospas, emerged from the palace to judge his subjects, as was his custom. And all the Egyptian leaders got together. They came before the king, and they started complaining. How can you torment us so much? You don't even allow us to bury our dead now without paying a tax. This was never done before, not in the days of our fathers, not in the days of the earlier kings. Listen, we understand you can tax the living. You can't tax the dead. How can your majesty tolerate such a thing? You don't understand. Your whole kingdom's been demoralized. And they went on a rant and an absolute rave. And the king listened to all of this. And he said, how dare you even say such a thing? Who told you such a thing? I never, ever, ever went and said such a thing. And if somebody's imposing that on you, then he deserves to be brought to death. Where is this guy? And he dispatched his, um, his men, his army men, to go and bring Rekion to him. So Rekion is called to the king. How does he come to the king? He comes with a thousand young men. He dressed them up all very beautifully. Each was given a horse and a gift that they had to present before the king. And he came to the palace. And then he appeared. And he had, by that time now, many followers, many servants. And Rekion also uh, rode an expensive, very expensive horse. It was adorned with, with precious trappings. And he had the most beautiful gifts in his hand. And he bowed down before the king of Egypt. Everybody that watched this spectacle was astounded at this guy's wealth, at his appearance, at his gifts. Even the king couldn't hold back. He was 
gobsmacked. So the king asked Rekion to be seated, and he started a conversation with him. And believe it or not, um, Paroi was so impressed with with him. He he was so strongly attracted to him. He said, "You know what? I'm not going to put you to death, and I'm not going to call you Rekion anymore." Rekion comes from the word rake, emptiness, nothingness. I'm going to call you paroi, which has the connotation of ransom. It comes from peraon, which means ransom. And instead of beheading him, on that very day, the king made Rekion his viceroy. His title was paroi, and he gave him, just like in the story of Yosef, charge of the entire kingdom, except for the one day when the king himself left the palace to judge his subjects personally. And eventually, as time passed, the king of Egypt passed away. Rekion, now known as Paroi, himself became king. And after this, it became generally accepted that the kings of Egypt would be known as Paroi's, as pharaohs. So he has a very, very interesting, quite fascinating story of how the kings of Egypt were known as, with the title Pharaoh. This happened um, before Abraham coming in, because when Abraham comes into the land of Egypt, there's already a paroi um, in place. So it must have happened from the time of the coming out of the ark, because we know that the nation of Cush um, inhabited the land of Mitzrayim. It happened in that period of time that this Rekayon became a paroi. Now let's go back into the story. There's a Ra'av Ba'aretz. There's a famine in the land, and Abraham is forced to go down to Egypt, albeit temporarily, because the famine was terrible in the land. Now, there is a halakha that states that once one resides in the land of Israel, it's forbidden to leave the Holy Land to live elsewhere. Okay? Um, but here, God had created like the worst calamity that possibly could have been. You know, if Avram, Avram was wealthy, as we know, and he would have been able to buy food even if it was expensive. Okay? Here, there was absolutely no food whatsoever. Food was totally unavailable. And in the manner of life and death, he had no choice but to leave the land of Egypt. And very interesting, the rest of the world enjoyed a lot of harvest, plentiful harvests. Things were great everywhere else. Early the land of Canaan, there was a famine. And that's why it says, Vahi Ra'av Ba'aretz. There only was a famine in the land where Avram was at the time. Now the question could be asked, why did God do that? You've just asked the guy to uproot and relocate, and he goes, Betuv Levav, he goes with a good heart, he doesn't question God, he, he entrusts God completely, and now you, he arrives in the land, and the land becomes uninhabitable. You cannot live there because there's no food. Just as a precursor, Abraham goes through ten tests. God gives him ten different situations and opportunities where he has to prove his dedication and his loyalty to God. The first was 
the command to Lech Lecha, to leave his land without God even telling him where to go. This story is the second test that Abraham goes through, and this is the test of famine. So we can ask ourselves, why did God only create, um, why did God only create a famine in the land? Well, the first part is the test that he wanted to see if Abraham would grumble, like he would go, hey, you know, like, I lived here like a king and now, you know, God's made me go out in, into strange land and I only did it because I was obeying his commandment. I was connected to God. But now look what happens. I come and do what God tells me to do and there is a calamity. Okay. And how can I stay here now? I cannot feed, feed, feed my family. That would be the ordinary, um, results. And complaint that a person would have Many, many times we see in life That God pushes us somewhere We we pass the test We overcome it Only to be slapped with something much, much harder And then we go, what is going on over here? I showed God how dedicated I was I did X, Y, and Z I did A, B, C Why is he pushing me more? Interestingly, Abraham doesn't make any such complaints He doesn't voice such complaints he doesn't do anything. He just works pragmatically. The second reason we are told is that God was concerned about Abraham um, and wanted to support him through the days of, of, of famine. And so what he wanted to do was he, he could have prevented Abraham from leaving the Holy Land. Okay, but God doesn't bring miracles unless it's absolutely necessary. He could have created a miracle. And Abraham would have eaten. Okay. What God wanted to do was things to happen in a, an ordinary way. And so because there was a famine, okay, he gave Abraham the ability to leave um, the Holy Land and go to Egypt. This also allowed Abraham, the upside of this was that then he could find all the wayfarers along the way, as was his custom, and he would actually gather more. There's something much deeper than that, though, and that is following the adage, as I mentioned earlier, of Mase Avot Siman Lebanim, that what, that which our forefathers did would be a sign for, uh, for his children. And what we see much later, towards the end of the book of Bereshit, when Yaakov is about to die, and actually prior to that, somewhat, there is again a famine in the land of Israel. They're unable to feed themselves. And what do they do? Yaakov sends his sons into Egypt um, to get food. They take that trip twice, okay, um, once once without Benjamin, Benjamin, and then a second time with Benjamin. Of course, the whole story of Yosef unfolds after that with their brother Joseph. But this is really Abraham was enacting what would happen with his children because ultimately because of the famine, Yaakov and his sons go down to Egypt. They emigrate to Egypt and then we find ourselves in the the galut in the in in the in the slavery of Egypt for 210 years. This again mimicking what is happening with Abraham now. There is a slavery, almost as if um, mimicking uh, Sarai being taken into 
the palace and when Paro lets Abraham go, he leaves Egypt far wealthier than when he came into Egypt. And this again was a sign for the Jew, Jewish people that just as we spent 210 years in Egypt, when we left, in fact, we were showered with, with gifts and we too left Egypt um, very, very wealthy. So that which happens to Abraham now on a microcosmic level happens to the Jewish people all together. If you have any questions, any comments that you'd like to make, don't be shy. The SMS number is 34519. Telegram 0618951019. Now we come to a very, very interesting idea, um, and that is that Abraham recognizes the beauty of Sarai, his wife. In fact, when we look at at um, at Sarai, um, his wife, and seeing that she is beautiful, we are told that there were four women that were known for their extraordinary beauty. Sarai, okay, she was beautiful, so beautiful that Abraham decided to hide her and not let her be seen. Um, because he was scared that they they would kill him and take her away. We also have a lady called Rahav, which you can read in the book of Yehoshua, in the book of Joshua, which is the first book of the Nach, of the Nevi'im part of the Torah. Okay. Um, she lived in Jericho, in the Promised Land, and she assisted B'nai Israel, the Jews, to capture the land. And um, she was one of the most beautiful women in the world, and she is mentioned there in the book of Joshua. Then we also have a lady by the name of Avigail. Okay, Avigail was also described not only as beautiful, but as intelligent. She was the wife of Naval, and she became a wife to King David after Naval died. Okay, um, and she became then hence the mother of one of David's sons, and all of this is listed in the book of Chronicles and Divrei Hayamim. And finally, we have the, um, the fourth lady in the Torah that is described as extremely beautiful, and that is Esther, who obviously, as we all know, is the heroine of the book that's named after her, Megillat Esther. She lived in exile in the Persian diaspora. She becomes queen to crazy old Hashverosh, and in the entanglement of that story, she actually becomes the savior of the Jewish people. So four women are described as exceedingly beautiful. Sarai, as in our story, Rachav in the book of Joshua, Avigal, who eventually becomes one of King David's wives, and the Queen Esther that we know from the story of Purim. This is Mystical Text with Adel Kazilski. Welcome back. And... Uh, now that we know that Sarah was a beautiful woman, okay, we understand what Abraham says. He says, Hineina yadaiti ki isha yifat at you are a beautiful woman, vahayaki yiru otacha mitzrim. They're going to, the Egyptians are going to see you, vahamru ishtuzot, and if they know that you are my wife, hargu oti, they will kill me, vahotach yichayu. They will take them. 
will take you. You'll be able to live. Imri na achoisiat. Tell them that you are my sister. Leman yitavli ba'avurech. So that it'll be good for me, for your sake, for haisa nafshi biglalech. And my life will be spared at the same time. So, we're told that the Egyptians were not a very good-looking society. Um, they didn't really, they would not have really scored too much in the Miss Universe context. And so when Sarai landed up in, the, in, in Egypt, she like took them by storm because nobody had seen anything so beautiful. In fact, she was many times as beautiful as she actually was simply because the nation of Egypt were not beautiful at all. So Abraham comes with an interesting idea. He hides Sarai in a, in a, in a chest, um, at the bottom of the chest and he covers her with his belongings. Okay. Um, so that the, the authorities would not see her as they entered the main city. Um, and he figured, look, they'll open up the chest, but he would start bartering with them. And, um, also he, he knew that she wouldn't be able to live in the chest all the time they were there. So he said, but when, when you are seen, then just say that you are my wife. In fact, um, he tells everybody, because his nephew Lot and all the other men who accompany him coming to Egypt with them, and he told everybody, you've got to say that Sarai is my sister. And uh, we know that murder was against the law in Egypt, that we do know, and and there was a law um, against taking another man's wife, but that he knew that if they killed him, they would have done that to him once and for all, and that would have been the end of that. So he was really, really nervous about it. So they come to Egypt, and they have to pass through customs, and obviously the agents ask what's in this chest. It was heavy. It was obviously full. And Avram says, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what's in the chest. I'll pay you whatever you request. So the chief customs officer um, said, well, maybe the chest is full of gold vessels. You know, then the duty is much, much higher. So Avram goes, okay, doesn't matter. I'll pay full duty for gold. You don't have to open it up. Well, th that made the chief customs officer even more suspicious and he says to them, well, how do we know the chest is not filled with precious stones? Okay, said Abraham, well, then, you know, I'll pay the duty for diamonds. And when the chief officer saw that Abraham was really ready to pay for anything other than open up the chest, he became unbelievably suspicious. He says, look, this chest might be filled with priceless gems without seeing them. It's impossible to estimate its value. Is it also possible that there's something harm, there could be something harmful inside of this chest? We're not letting you pass without opening it. We must see what's inside. I think <laughs> that these guys were the reincarnation of the border control people in Australia. <laughs> um, joke. Don't think that I'm telling you anything karmic. But nevertheless, you could see border, border control uh, was happening many thousands of years ago. Anyway, so this conversation came to a grinding halt. They realized that they have to open up the chest, and behold, they open it, and they discover an extraordinarily beautiful woman inside. It said that her face was so beautiful that it seemed to glow in the twilight. And the customs inspectors were completely taken aback. They started fighting over her, each of them telling Avram that since it was his sister, she they, they, they would be happy to buy her off him. They couldn't come to any type of compromise, and so they take her 
to Paro's house because eventually they decide she's so beautiful that she should be brought to Paro, king of Egypt, because no commoner is actually worthy, worthy of her. Now, Paroi sees Sarai, decides that definitely he wants this beautiful woman as his wife. And so what does verse 16 say? Ula Avram hetiv ba'avura. Paro was good to Avraham because of her. And he gives, he pays Avraham sheep, cattle, donkeys, slaves, female donkeys, camels, you name it. Um, Paroi pays Avraham for the opportunity of having um, Sarai as his wife. Again, this is the Maaseh Avot Siman Labanim, that just like Avram came to Egypt, suffered very much, but then came and came out with great wealth, so to that would happen. Our rabbis teach, by the way, that a man should always strive to honor his wife, since blessing comes to a home only because of the woman of the house. And Rava said to the men of the city, Machuza, Honor your wife and you will become wealthy. And how do we prove it? Because it says, Ula Avram hetiv ba'avura, that Avraham became wealthy because of her. So there you go, men out there that are listening. Honoring your wife um, is a very, very important thing. Just by the way, um, if anything is ringing in men's, men's ears right now that uh, – what happens if you don't have such a nice wife? There, there are other laws, but we are not going to discuss this right now. Sarah is taken to Paro's palace. Um, she realizes that she's in huge danger. So she offers up a prayer to God, um, asking God, look, my husband left his land because of your promise. I followed him, believing his words. There was a famine in the land of Canaan. We were forced to come here. How can you allow me to be put in such a compromised position. And this, by the way, this entire story, the Yalkin Ram lawyers tells us, happened on Erev Pesach, on the, on, on the, on the night of Pesach. And it says she wept and she prayed, um, and Abraham was now stuck somewhere else. He was davening, and the angel Gabriel came and said to her, in the name of God, that she should not worry. God will not allow Paroi, um, to come anywhere close to him. In fact, we are told that the angel Gabriel remained with her the whole night, assuring her that she was under his protection. And indeed, that's what happened. Every time Paro tried to come close to her, um, he was punished. Um, there were many ways that he was punished. The first was that it says that he got a skin infection called ratan. Um, Ratan, we do not know how to translate, but some of the Mephoshim say it's similar to syphilis, which you can then understand makes things very uncomfortable. It also affects the brain. Um, you, 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 you go a little cuckoo, and that's why it says that he was hurt with Nagayim Gadolim, with severe plagues. We are told that also that night a number of women who were in, were in the midst of giving birth, and God caused, um, <clears throat> The birth process to be stopped, and these women landed up getting stuck in limbo in the middle of delivery, and they were screaming from the agony, and that screaming was heard 
all over the place. And the third punishment was that any time besides having this terrible skin infection called ratan, every time Paro tried to come close to Sarai to woo her, um, the angel Gabriel would beat him without mercy. And not only was he beaten, but his slaves and his courtiers were also uh, being beaten. And they found themselves in huge pain. They moaned. They cried out the whole night. Um, they could not see who was beating them, but it really, really was a very, very awful situation. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. The man who stops advertising to save money is the man who stops the clock to save time. To find out how High FM can work for your business, call us on 010-140-4090. Hi, I'm David Aronovitz. For nearly 50 years, the Kolel Bookshop has been the supply of Judaica to the community. We pride ourselves on the extensive range we carry. Whether it be Art Scroll, Korean, Feldam, or Maznayim, we carry the most comprehensive range of books and giftware. Our superb gift range, including silver, glassware, and mezuzot, is always being updated. Our Talis and Yamika range is awesome. Best price, best advice. Pop into us at 17 Northfield Avenue, Glen Hazel, for a Jewish experience. Change the course of your career by studying the Postgraduate Diploma in Management at Boston City Campus. Your bachelor's degree in any field is your ticket to advanced knowledge of business and general management. This is your chance to become a business success story. Apply now to study this internationally accredited Postgraduate Diploma online or at Boston's beautiful and tranquil Bedford View Campus. See boston.co.za to learn more or email info at boston.co.za. Do your retail clients or tenants ask you to recommend a reliable source to kit out the display needs for their shops? With store layouts and builds, it's the modular items such as mannequins, dress rails and clothing hangers, grid display systems and flat pack wooden counters that add the finishing touches. Display Equipment Co. Supplying on-trend solutions since 1959. Because great displays increase sales. Go to display.co.za. This is Mystical Text with Adel Kazilski. And so we have a beaten and bruised up Paroi, a court palace in absolute disarray. And Paro calls to Avram and says to him, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me you, uh, she was your wife? I wouldn't have done anything to you. And in absolute desperation, he actually says to Avram, please pack up. Take what you need. In fact, I'll give you even more than what he gave initially because he thought he was acquiring Sarah and he sends her on the way. But with Paroi, what Paroi really um, lands up understanding is that he saw that Abraham was not an ordinary man, that he was somewhat of a saint, a person who had an incredible connection with spirituality, with God, that God was looking after him and that all that happened to him in the palace was on account of him trying to touch Abraham and Abraham's um, family, etc., etc. And so he was so overwhelmed. Now, you must remember, by the way, the Egyptians were great sorcerers and no one ever had the power to overcome him. But when he saw Abraham, he saw how unbelievably strong was with Abraham and he made a very good decision, Paro. He told him to go. Just as an interesting note to this entire story, Abraham, as one, uh, sorry, Paro as one of the gifts, gives Sarai 
his daughter as a handmaid, okay, and so that she could be a servant in Avram's house. And before giving her to Avram, Paro says to his daughter, my daughter, it's better for you to be a servant in Avram's house, so highly is he blessed, than for you to be a princess in my palace. And after seeing Sarai's greatness with my own eyes, there's nothing I can say. I want you to serve her with your heart and soul. In this manner, you will gain great benefit from her. And uh, he sends them away, and just in case nobody knew, this, in fact, was Hagar. This was Sarai's maidservant Hagar that later on as we go through the parasha of Lech Lecha you see that this is whom Sarai Sarah gives to Abraham as a wife when it seems that she is infertile and unable to conceive a child. A fascinating story, a microcosm of what would happen later with the Jewish people um, macrocosmically going down into the land of Egypt and another chapter in the journeying of Abraham. And to that end, I wish you a wonderful journey this week going out into your sphere of influence, spread the light of goodness and kindness like Abraham, and let's continue in a positive manner, bringing light, connectedness to God, Torah and mitzvahs into our world. Have a wonderful week.